You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And by Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric. And Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. The Slovak Direct, a 9,000 vertical foot route to the right of the Cassine Ridge on Denali's south face, is one of North America's most coveted climbs. It's the kind of route that draws top alpinists from around the world to test themselves, the way some of El Cap's free routes lure the world's best rock climbers. First climbed by a Slovakian trio over 11 days in 1984, the route starts with more than a vertical mile of steep, highly technical ice and mix climbing, followed by a punishing high-altitude slog to the summit. Just climbing the Slovak Direct is a feather in the cap for any alpinist. It's only been done about a dozen times in nearly 40 years. But on this episode, we'll be speaking with three climbers who have done it in single push style, taking the bare minimum equipment and only resting briefly along the way. The first ascent in this style in 2000 by Steve House, Scott Backies, and Mark Twight felt revolutionary for Alaskan climbing. The three climbed nearly continuously for 60 hours, facing huge unknowns. This spring, more than 20 years later, the route saw more single push ascents. First came Matt Cornell, one of our guests on this episode, along with Jackson Marble and Alan Rousseau. Three weeks later, it was Michael Gardner, Sam Hennessy, and Rob Smith, who was also joining us. Incredibly, these trios both went under 24 hours on the route. As you'll hear from Steve, Matt, and Rob, however, the Slovak Direct is not a race course. The way they see it, climbing this route in single push style is more like a path to greater knowledge of cutting edge systems and tactics, of one's teammates, and ultimately of oneself. Steve, Matt, Rob, welcome to The Cutting Edge. Um, why don't you each introduce yourselves so listeners know what you sound like and say where you are right now. I'm Rob Smith, and I'm currently in Syriana, Spain, but I live in Chamonix, France. I am Matt Cornell, and I am currently in a town right outside Yosemite, Groveland, California, uh, where I live seasonally in the spring, summer, and fall. Steve? My name is Steve Howes. I am in Lienz, Austria, where I live with my wife and two sons. Great. Well, let's start with a bit about this route itself, the Slovak Direct. Um, any any of you could s- jump in, but where is the route on Denali? When was it first climbed? And, and I guess, why is it such a coveted climb? Yeah, I can start with the little history. 
I first found out about the what was then called the Check Direct when I was uh, reading John Waterman's book, High Alaska. It was uh, at the time kind of the only guidebook to Alaska, and there was just sort of this big fat line drawn up this this steepest part of the south face, just to the right of the Cassine. And it was intriguing because it certainly seemed by all accounts and to be the most difficult route ever climbed on Denali. It was climbed by, uh, in an interesting style, there was two teams that sort of worked in parallel. There was a group of four Slovak, as it turned out, but we thought they were Czech at the time. A team of four Slovak climbers that climbed over 11 days in sort of a I guess what we'd call a capsule style. And there was a support team, as I recall, of five climbers that climbed the Cassine in, in parallel and met them on the summit. Pretty, pretty hard to imagine what uh, they were, how they were climbing such hard technical ground and in really incredibly fast time, considering that, you know, they probably had double leather boots. Uh, they probably had, you know, stoves and, and tents and sleeping bags and just everything that probably barely worked and they were a hundred percent committed i mean that was it's a big big steep steep face and it would be really hard to retreat from especially with that era's technology mm-hmm. and it's re- and it's remained a, a sort of i mean I, I guess it's hard to say it's classic in a sense because it hasn't been done that many times do you know how many times it's been climbed I'm not sure the number of ascents. I would guess it to be more towards 10 or 12, Mm -hmm. but I'm not certain of that. That seems about right to me from what I've read. Uh, Did it live up to your expectations? Was it as good as you expected it to be? For me, I thought it was incredible. Um, Perfect rock quality. We had perfect ice conditions. I have not found it to be so common to have such high quality climbing on such big routes on big faces. There's usually like some really gross pitches or some unpleasant pitches. And this was all um, really classic, really awesome climbing. All right. Well, let's talk about the um, the 2000 climb that uh, Steve and Mark Twight and Scott Backies did. In his AAJ article about that climb, Scott Backies wrote, we were attracted to the route because it was hard, beautiful, and unrepeated. But the style, not the route, was paramount. Rather than applying excess technology to guarantee success, we would leave it behind everything we did not absolutely need. We wanted to climb one of the hardest routes on Denali in a continuous push. No tent, no sleeping bags, no margin. It felt like science fiction. So Steve, whose idea was the single push ascent back then, and, and what was the inspiration? Well, there was kind of a wave of interest in climbing routes in a single push style that really I would I would attribute probably to Mug Stump. I mean, there may have been others uh, involved, but it certainly predated my time in Alaska, and that's certainly what what inspired me with those types of climbs and. That was around the same time as you'll remember, Dougal, that you and I met the first time. I think that was maybe 96 or something in the Alaska range. But throughout the 90s, there was this activity around climbing 
roots in, you know, what Wojtek Kurtika called Night Naked or what we called Single Push style, which we were, of course, leaning on the fact that in summer in Alaska, it doesn't get dark. So we could just climb longer and then take naps during the warm parts of the days. And so you'll also notice that these roots or sunny aspects didn't work so well on cold aspects like, north, you know, shady aspects. Did one of the three of you sort of come up with the idea of the Slovaks specifically and sort of bring it to the others? Yeah, I did. Um, and I, what I, did, I found the original topo that the Slovak climbers left in the Talkeetna Ranger Station back when it was the original log cabin ranger station, probably in 1996. And I, I photo, made a photocopy of it and I carried that around for years. Um, and it was this really, I didn't tell anyone about it until Mark and I started climbing together. And after Mark and uh, John, Jonathan Carpenter and I climbed a route uh, on Mount Bradley in the Ruth Gorge in April 1999, maybe it was 98, somewhere in there, I, I mailed, I photocopied the topo with no explanation and just put it in an envelope and mailed it to Mark. Nice. You know, what were the unknowns then? I mean, specifically for Denali. I mean, I know that this style and this sort of the uh, the scope of it was probably an unknown for you. But um, were there things about doing a route on Denali in this style that concerned you? I think what concerned us was um, finding something that we wouldn't be able to climb. Because, <laughs> you know, the topo was very vague, but it also had some very intimidating numbers, you know, it had numbers like 100 degree ice. We weren't sure what that meant. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it also had some aid ratings on some of the pitches. We weren't going up there with big heavy aid racks, so we weren't really entirely sure what those pitches were going to entail. But we were hoping that, you know, counting on being able to free or French free, you know, sort of A0 that that section of those sections of the route and we just weren't sure like how you know the topo I, I don't remember how many pitches were in the topo but it was something on the order of 60 which sort of added up we figured that they probably were climbing mostly 40 meter pitches um, we were climbing 60 meter pitches by then but still uh, we just didn't know how we could climb that many sort of pitch pitches of pitched climbing um mark and i went in 1999 and attempted it as a pair um and we did a a, a really good acclimatization round i had actually already been guiding on the mountain and been to 16 and then he and i went up and we actually did a recon where we uh, went up the west upper west rib to about 18 thousand or so i don't remember exactly where it's probably in a notebook somewhere between 18 and 18.5 and we basically um traversed all the way over to the top of the casino from the top of the west rib uh just and it was perfect day perfect conditions just cramponed over there michael covington had told me that he had done that a couple times in some of his attempts at guiding the the uh the casino that he had traverse from the top of the casino over to the top of the rib and then down to the 14 camp. So we wanted to check that out and see if we could see something of the route uh, because we, I, you know, I, I'd seen it from 
when Steve Swenson and I went up there to the top of the East Fork in 1997, I had seen the, 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 that part of the South Face and took, taken some pictures, but it was impossible to get aerial photos because the plane pilots didn't want to fly in that close to it. And, uh, and then we, the pictures I had from the East Fork were all super foreshortened and it was really hard to figure out where the route went. And then when we t- went over to the top of the casino and looked down, I mean, all you see is snow fields because you, you did, which makes sense, but it just didn't make sense. And we went back down and by the time we got good weather again, it was actually like July 2nd. And the lower part of the lower glacier had turned isothermal and we just weren't able to travel on the glacier anymore, even at night. And so we flew out and that was 1999. And we talked about it in the, you know, over the next few months. And we, we thought that one of the reasons that we hadn't climbed, you know, even climbed on the route, let alone like climbed through, like even made an attempt was admitted to one another that we were just too scared to go up there as a team of two. And we didn't really, you know, feel like comfortable enough, uh, strong enough to brave enough as just a team of two to, to go up there. And that's, that's when we recruited uh, Scott and, you know, it kind of was a good, uh, circle of events, I would say, in that I had been climbing with Scott Backies quite a bit in Canada, independently of climbing with Mark. So Mark and Scott, obviously, as many will know, had a, a, a long and deep friendship and relationship as climbing partners that preceded me ever coming onto the scene. And but then I had this great relationship with Mark and he, he and I climbed a bunch together. And then in parallel, I had been climbing a lot with Scott and, you know, without Mark. So it ended up uh, those, the kind of the way those three relationships and friendships and climbing partnerships were, had developed, it ended up being a really logical choice mm-hmm. for us to kind of join forces. So that was a really long answer to your question. So counting on you to edit this all down. <laughs> You know, people can read about this ascent. I don't want to go over it in, in detail, but in general, did things go more or less as you expected, um, or were there huge surprises along the way? Well, I think like anything this complex, there was a bit of both, right? Like the lower part of the route went much better than we expected. Uh, it was much easier than we expected, and uh, we went we got higher more quickly than we expected. So that was a nice surprise. Um, and then what the part that went, I would say, sideways where where, where there were surprises was up above the crux climbing when we got you know the, it got really foggy. The clouds came in, and we basically got lost and got way off route. And we, we, we were climbing up close to this, uh, Sarax of what's known as Big Bertha, this big Sarax that, that threatened the right side of the, that part of the phase. And so we knew they were to our right. So we climbed too far left because we couldn't see anything. And that wasted a bunch of that, that cost us a lot of time and energy. Um, and just, uh, 
let's say motivation and just just psych because it's pretty demoralizing to be 40 hours into climbing without sleep and then to get really lost and we had to rappel down some pitches and try to figure out where we were and we were scared because of big bertha and and whatnot so there was some we we got ourselves out of that and then quite quite we didn't realize like we were literally two pitches from the end of the easy climbing, we made an, uh, a last kind of brew nap stop. And uh, that was a bad choice because it was late and cold and uh, was not sunny and anymore. And we, but we were just cooked. And that, that cost us, I'm sure that cost us more time than it saved us, uh, especially once we realized how close we were to the, to the top. So those were... That last little, I would say the last third and the first third both had significant surprises, one to the positive and one probably to the negative. Mm -hmm. And you spent a total of, what, 60 hours on the route, right? Was that Shrun to Summit? Yeah, it was Shrun to Summit, although we didn't go to the summit. We stopped at the top. Right. We went to the top of Pig Hill and uh, we we went down from there. We were, frankly, a little worried about just like you know frostbite we've been just strung out for so long that we just were trying to get to safety as soon as possible at that point mm -hmm. and did you uh did you stop and and sleep at all uh, during that 60 hours or just cat naps or? yeah we made four uh stops uh, i think the longest one was four hours and the shortest one was probably about two i don't remember exactly but yeah all of those involved some sort of cat nap but mm -hmm really short but no tent right no sleeping bag no tent no kind of pad we had we brought uh two we were we were worried about really worried about like abject equipment failure so for example we brought two uh msr xtk stoves for melting water because we were worried about one of them failing mm -hmm. um and then being really screwed without food and water we were really dependent on the stoves for both hydration and nutrition since most of the food we had was you know either in the form of gels or in the form of some sort of you know sports drink mix that you mixed from some sort of dry powder into water so um yeah we but we didn't have anything else we didn't have a sleeping pad we didn't have a tent we had down jackets and stoves and that was it mm -hmm. you, you mentioned we had a tarp actually mm -hmm. um and we were light but we weren't that light like we took <laughs> we counted on 48 hours and so we had 150 gels wow. <laughs> well, i mean we only ate i think we i think we only took you know, uh, I think we only consumed, I don't remember, but we didn't even consume half of those. <laughs> so, and we had a big rack, like we had a double set of cams. We had, you know, 12 screws. We had like a, you know, pretty significant yeah. amount of stuff. Right. Right. So then the route goes, you know, all these years, this was 22 years ago. And the route goes with sp very sporadic ascents. You know, maybe every two or three years it gets climbed, maybe maybe less frequently. And then suddenly this year, two single push ascents within three weeks. Actually, I think there were three. Um, and we can talk about that. But uh, Matt and Rob, why don't you each talk about the genesis of 
your ascents this year and your team. And I guess we should go chronologically. So Matt, you want to you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so we went up. It was Alan Russo, Jackson Marvel, and myself. Um, we flew onto the Gehiltna and went up and acclimatized on the West Rib. I think we spent like three or four nights at 14, um, in which we had summited and went back to base camp. Um, so we weren't super acclimatized for our attempt, but we saw that there was like a good weather window pushing in. So we didn't want to miss the weather. Um, so we took three rest days in base camp and then skied up the East fork, um, bivied and crossed the Shrond at about four twenty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we broke it up into three blocks. Um, cause when you look at the route on paper, you see that it kind of like breaks up evenly, um, at good points between like snowfields. So that was kind of our strategy. Um, and I remember, Alan Russo taking the first block and, you know, he crushed it, it goes quick. There's a lot of kind of like zigzagging snow ramps that you follow. And I think there's a Bergschrund about a third of the way up that we swapped leads. Um, and I think it took Alan about five hours to do his block. And then Jackson took over from there and his block was also about five hours for him to complete. And that takes you up through um, a beautiful ice tube and, gets you right to the base of um i think the the crux variation and so that's where we switched and i took over um and we'd wanted to try to free that variation because i think in the past people have just aided it or weren't able to so we were trying to get up there at a reasonable time where it was warm enough that you could actually like hang on to your tools and take your time and free climb and be Mm -hmm. comfortable um and i made it almost to the top of the pitch and then took a small lead fall, um, just clearing out some snow out of a crack and popped a tool. So I wasn't able to free it, but, you know, pulled on a couple cams and finished up the pitch and Alan and Jackson both, um, followed the pitch clean. And then from there you kind of, yeah, get into those upper slopes where it's kind of like hard ice and, you know, we had good clear weather. So it was like, you know, pretty easy to like see where you need to go but it was still like wandering and zigzagging back and forth and it was a little more time consuming than you want it to be even though it's easier terrain so i think i took about seven hours on my block and then from there we joined the casino found a patch of sun and brewed up um i think that was our second time we brewed for the entire route um and then continued up the casino and tagged the summit sometime in the middle of the night Mm-hmm. So, and had you uh, had any of you guys ever done or uh, attempted the Slovak? Had Jackson or Allen been on it before? Yeah, so Jackson and Allen were in the Kahiltna the year before, just the two of them, and they were trying to climb um, the North Buttress Mount Hunter, uh, the Infinite Sparrow Mount Forker, as well as the Slovak on Denali, all in a single push in the same season, and I think they were able to climb the moonflower buttress to the cornice at the top of the buttress um, in a push, as well as they push the infinite spur. Um, I couldn't tell you what time they did it in, but it was fairly quick. Um, And then they went out to attempt the Slovak, but 
I think they skied to the base and the weather wasn't quite good enough. I think they had skied to the base multiple times, but never <laughs> left the ground. <laughs> so um, this was kind of the continuation for them, and they had invited me to join. Nice. And Rob, you did the Infinite Spur in a day with Colin Haley, right? Um, yes, in 2016. Right. So did you start thinking about the Slovak then, or was this somebody else's idea, Sam or Michael's idea, and, and you hooked up with them? <clears throat> well, yes, I did start thinking about it then. Um, I actually remember reading about Steve's ascent in a book on that trip and thinking that it seemed pretty crazy. But um, after we climbed Mount Forker, I thought maybe it was not such a crazy idea. And um, I went in 2017 with Rafael Slowinski, mm. and we just acclimatized and had really bad weather and never got on the route. And then I went again in 2018 with Colin Haley, similar circumstances. Um, along those same years, Sam and Michael were trying it as well in similar circumstances, um, acclimatized, never had the weather. Um, yeah, and we all knew each other really well. We had gone to the Himalaya together, and um, I kind of called them in the autumn and said, hey, guys, let's let's all just go together and do this. And um, yeah, so we decided to make it a plan. Mm-hmm. And um, a little bit different logistics, because Michael and Sam were guiding the West Buttress. And so we all flew into the range in early May and made some attempt on the North Buttress of Mount Hunter, and then we all flew out together. And then independently, we all flew back in to acclimatize those guys on their work trips. And I went with a buddy of mine, um, a different Sam, and we acclimatized kind of side by each with uh, Sam and Michael and made sure we were on the same schedule and hung out the same days and spent the same amount of time at altitude. And we were quite acclimatized, which was really good. And um, then we all flew out together and um, had a pretty lovely three or four days in Talkeetna where we just ate tons of food and slept <laughs> 14 hours a night. And then we had an incredible weather forecast that was followed by basically three weeks of high pressure. So I would say basically a once in a lifetime opportunity to try a route in conditions that you really couldn't even dream up in your wildest imagination. Mm-hmm. And so when we were in Talkeetna, we thought this is really a once in a lifetime opportunity to try it in these conditions. Let's go as light as possible and still be safe. And so we did that. We um, went incredibly light and um, yeah, it all worked out. We um, perfect weather, perfect conditions. Um, very different experience than what Steve was describing. I mean, I had multiple friends climb it over the years and I'd been like studying topos for years and years. And then when these guys came down to 14 after climbing it, I got a firsthand account and Alan made us all these awesome pictures and diagrams. And it was kind of like how climbing in the Alps is. It's like you are alpine climbing, but you have so much information Mm. that it's like a dramatically different style than traditional alpine climbing where there's quite a lot of ambiguity Hmm. yeah i'd like to talk more about the differences between 22 and and year 2000 but just a little bit more about you this year's 
sort of tactics. Um, I mean, first of all, you have to ski a long ways in there. Um, how do you handle that? Do you leave the skis at the base and then pick them up later? Or how does that work? Um, well, the way that we did it, we we didn't fly back in when we wanted to because it was too hot and the planes weren't flying. So we waited around in town, had a nice breakfast, and we flew in at about 11 o'clock. And then we basically skied to the base in about three hours um, as fast as we could because we were really worried about the heat and the safety of the glacier and just getting scorched by the heat. So um, we went pretty fast and it was pretty tiring, but um, it was nice to get there when there was still something of a refreeze. Um, And we chose ski mountaineering racing setups so that we didn't blister our feet or get our climbing boots um, wet. Um, And then, yeah, we left all that stuff at the base And then after we climbed the route, we went um, up the West Rib, down the Seattle ramp, up and over this little ridge and over back into the basin and switched back into ski boots and skied back to base camp and flew out and flew home. (laughs) Just a nice uh, couple day tour of the mountain. It was quite the tour. Uh, Matt, did you do the same same sort of thing? Uh, Did you leave stuff at the base? Yeah, so we um, kind of did a similar thing where we skied in with um, a real touring setup um, and left them at the base. And we had stashed uh, Solvretas over at 11 camp um, when we had previously acclimatized. And we actually had some friends from um, Hilton and Base Camp ski up the East Fork and retrieve our skis so we wouldn't have to go back. Mm. Yeah, Nice. Can you guys each briefly describe the gear that you brought in 2022 or actually more precisely what you didn't bring um you know steve talked a little bit about you know pretty a relatively heavy setup for considering what they were trying to do um and i am curious how it compared with you guys both because of the knowledge that you have and uh and uh, I guess evolution of gear but I guess just simple things like you know did you bring one rope um more than one rope stove tent that kind of thing either one uh sure yeah um well we had a lot of knowledge and we had really good weather so like i said we brought the very minimal kit um we brought six ice screws um a single set of cams i think six quick draws a few slings and one 7.3 half rope and just kind of our personal clothes one fuel canister one jet boil and kind of like six bars each and some goose. And um, we did bring this giant Ziploc of Oreos as well, which I thought was kind of silly, but um, we did eat them. Is that similar, Matt, for your team or yeah, we, important we, differences? We had a little more kit since we didn't know how long it would take us. We figured it would take us anywhere from like 40 to 60 hours. Um, so we kind of like went a little heavier, but not nearly as heavy as, um, Steve had gone. We brought, um, I think a rack and a half of cams, so doubles and fingers, and then maybe a dozen ice screws, dozen Alpine draws. Um, we had a small bivy kit, which consisted of two inflatable pads, um, the North Face AMK bivy tent and a down quilt, which we figured we could all stuff ourselves Mm -hmm. in if we need. and we had a single nine one rope for the three of us. Mm-hmm. 
um, one and did stove, both of yeah. you in 2022 in one stove yeah. and did you both teams use sort of the same well, i guess what i call movement techniques where you're simul climbing most of the ground um did how did the how did the seconds tie in Sure. Yeah, we um, moved together quite a lot. Um, sometimes with the Petzl nano traction uh, between us to make the leader a little bit safer. Um, sometimes without, depending on how difficult the terrain was. Um, and we had one person on each end of the rope, and then one guy, the the middleman, as we would say, would just tie in on a bite, kind of like five meters above the end of the rope um just far enough so they wouldn't like hit their crampons on the other guys kind of tools or hands but um as far back as possible just to have more gear between the leader and the followers um while simul climbing mm -hmm. and did you ever stop and belay and second any pitches in the in the sort of traditional sense yes definitely um when i was leading i belayed the steep rock pitch and just after it, there's kind of like some loose rock pitches, and I belayed one of those. And maybe there was another one somewhere along the way. It was mostly simul climbing, but there was definitely some pitch climbing as well. Mm -hmm. Is that the same for you guys, Matt? Yeah, we use the same rope systems with the nano tracks and tying one into the end and one about five meters up. Um, and I think we belayed only three pitches. On the route, one was the um, kind of ice crux down low. Um, another was um, towards the top of the ice tube. And then the last one we blade was the crux uh, mixed pitch. Mm -hmm. I was interested to hear you say, Matt, that, that, that you really had no idea how long it was going to take. And, um, you know, went into it thinking it might even approach the length of the time uh it took in 2000 um I, I guess that surprises me um that you wouldn't assume with partly because you had really good conditions this year uh and also just i don't know with the knowledge that you wouldn't assume that it would have gone something closer to the speed you ended up doing it in can you yeah. just talk a little bit about how you how you thought about it yeah so we when you look at it on paper, it breaks up nicely. And we're just kind of, we're like, well, we would like to go sub 24. You know, that was like the, our, what we wanted to do. That was our goal. Um, but you know, no one had been, no one had tried it in a push since, um, 2000. So, you know, we knew that there were advances in gear and a lot more information on the route. Um, we had good Mark Westman topos and that he had kindly shared with us. Um, but we also kind of didn't know what the conditions of the route were. We didn't know what to expect. You know, none of us had ever been on it before. So we were kind of like looking at it like we could be in for the long haul. And we wanted to make sure that we were okay with that experience too, to be honest with ourselves on what our abilities are. And we could also go really fast. So we just didn't know. And when we were acclimatizing um, on the West Rib, it was like, negative 40 negative 50 so we were moving slow on that and it was like brutally cold so we didn't know what the temps were going to be like just a few days later going up the south face it could be just as cold or it could be a little warmer since we did have a warming trend and we we're climbing at the start of the high pressure window so mm -hmm. 
there hadn't been like great weather up to that point and we didn't know if the weather would change and make it more difficult and yeah so we we were kind of like taking all the factors into consideration um but once we got there and started climbing it became apparent that the weather was warm enough and that the conditions were in near perfect shape because there was really not much snow on the entire mountain it was mostly styrofoam so we were able Mm. to move really quick even on the upper casino but you just didn't know going into it that's really interesting um steve looking back at you know your climb and uh you know reading about and hearing about these these guys doing this this year i mean i imagine one of the big differences was um you guys were belaying a lot more is that is that right uh yeah i i guess i didn't i just learned a lot more about how much belaying and simul climbing i mean i just assumed you know knowing how fast these guys climbed that that they'd use these these tactics, which I would consider to be pretty, you know, like what all these strong young climbers do these days. Um, so yeah, we definitely belayed more. You know, anything fifth like fifth class. Yeah, we we belayed like we didn't. We actually didn't simul climb that much, even in the top um, kind of lower. <clears throat> excuse me, lower angle pitches because it was we were exhausted for one we didn't trust ourselves and the ice was really hard like it was like super hard cold um that ancient kind of alaskan ice we did bring a file with us i don't know if these guys did but we actually sharpened our tools and crampons multiple times in route hmm. did you guys bring a file no, no. yeah um Steve, were were uh, the, were the two seconds seconding simultaneously, or uh, were you sort of doing it in a traditional slow style, one at one at a time? No, we we um, we belayed like guide style off of a plaquette. Mm-hmm. Um, we had two eight millimeter ropes. I don't remember, you know, or nine millimeter ropes. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Two half ropes, two sixty meter half ropes. You know, were there other things that you listening to these guys talking about the 22 ascents that jump out at you as as reasons why um, you feel like they were, they were able to go so much faster? They're just way better climbers than we were. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just crushing it and they they yeah, sure, they have more information, but they're just way more confident on that kind of hard mixed ground. Um, you know, I mean. We were climbing in, you know, it, it's it's funny to live through this, Dougal, but, you know, we were we were climbing with leashes. Like, I had uh, prototype carbon fiber black profits that had curved handles at the bottom. Like, they were, like, some of the first, like, I was the wow. only one with ice tools that weren't completely straight. You know, like, it was a totally different, you know, a set of circumstances i mean scott was wearing a one-piece gore-tex suit like like full full on it's interesting i mean i have to step back and say it's actually been only 20 years i mean you think that uh, that when you list off of all those changes in the development of gear and things and sometimes i think things haven't changed that much in the last 20 years but boy they sure have yeah, I mean, just just the weight, the, the weight of everything was was different. Like, I mean, just 
Like, I mean, we are all wearing plastic boots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we are, we are all wearing like different hel- I mean, helmets that probably weigh four or five times what helmets weigh now, you know, it's just, yeah. And then for sure, the, well, I think the biggest difference honestly is the ice tools, ice tools and the picks are so much better than they were then. Like, uh, and just climbing with leashes was so like, it's hard to imagine that we did that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When we come back, we'll dive deep into the motivations for climbing a huge route in this extremely difficult style. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear list to make sure they packed PolarTech. We love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. You know, I think all the members of all three of your teams have said at various times that this wasn't about trying to set speed records. And um, maybe could each a little address sort of what the goal was. Um, uh, you know, if it wasn't a specific number, um, what were you each trying to trying to accomplish there? Maybe I guess Steve should go first. Yeah. Um, well, I I think quite frankly it was what all hard alpinism is, where it's it was really a metaphysical quest to find out who we were as individuals, who we are, who we could become as a team. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing short of, of, of that, you know, the, the route was a challenge that would fit our skill sets and our experiences, but the real purpose of it was to go deeper into our relationships with each other, into our relationships with ourselves, our understanding of one another, our understanding of ourselves our knowledge of our limits, um, to know ourselves in these, you know, in extremis is a different experience. And this kind of climbing offers a window to that world that is not easily found anymore. And, you know, maybe in our heart of hearts, we're still cavemen and buffalo hunters after all somehow. And we just sometimes need to go out and experience something really primal and you know have a have a good old-fashioned fight to the death (laughs) and that's kind of what it felt like 
you know, Matt, you you guys, as as you've said, there were a lot of unknowns about how long it was going to take you. Um, but you did also mention, uh, and I was wondering about this, if that twenty four hours was a target. Was it was it important to you to try to hit that twenty four hour target, or was it more just the the idea of going up there single push that was really important? Um, it was more the idea of the single push. We figured going under 24 would mean less suffering. So that was kind of like our motivation to get below that time. Um, just because it meant it was easier, but it wasn't like, you know, we weren't like trying to set like a record or like we have to be 24. We were just like, let's just go see how fast we can go. Um, and for us, it was um, kind of like a test in our systems to see if these kind of systems will work on these bigger alpine faces as well as like team building and getting to know each other better um this was the only the second time the three of us had ever climbed together um Mm -hmm. the first being a zodiac in the day on lcap a couple years back Mm -hmm. so um yeah it was more so just about building the team and being in the experience and testing these systems that um we hadn't really tested out as a team of three so it was more, yeah, oriented around that than trying to set set any kind of record. Or you had other goals in mind, as, as I understand that, uh, as a team. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, before we go into the greater ranges, we wanted to know if this is something that would be practical or not. <laughs> did you feel? I mean, I think obviously it worked on, on Denali, but um, I know you were in Nepal this fall, and did you feel like um, it was uh, applicable? the things that you learned on Denali? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. So mm-hmm. yeah, unfortunately we, um, one of our teammates had to bail out of the trip, but so we were just party too. So you never got a chance to reuse these same tactics that we use as a party three, but I think looking at it in the future, it is, um, possible. Nice. And Rob, I know you said it wasn't really com- a competitive situation, um, for your team and, you know, having seen uh, Matt and his crew go go three weeks before you, but having seen what they did, did you feel like it was important to you guys to go to try to go faster? Um, m- not necessarily to break a record, but because there was this sort of new benchmark um, for sort of seeing what you could do. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, the thing is, this was my fourteenth. 14th- um, Alaska range trip and Sam and Michael have each spent like the last 10 years doing the entire season there. And, um, one thing that we notice time and again is that the weather forecast is always wrong and the weather is really bad and being on a big mountain in that type of weather is terrifying. It could be um, a very bad situation. And I think that our quote need for speed was born out of being scared of the weather and scared of the mountain and the less time you spend up there um the higher likelihood it is that you can stick to the forecast you were given and that it doesn't change um no i mean i've i've been working with alan since like 2008 he's a good friend and um trying to go faster or beat somebody's time is that was never really part of our itinerary we all just really wanted to climb the route and we never imagined that we would get an opportunity to do it 
in such perfect weather and conditions. I mean, that's not like a small detail, like doing it in the weather and conditions we did it in. Somebody might not ever have that opportunity again. Who knows? I mean, it's really profound and was a very different experience than probably what Steve had and, you know, what Matt had. And um, yeah, it just all really worked out. And Michael and Sam are not only good climbers, but I would say they're just kind of like incredible athletes with um, a very high level of endurance. I've climbed with some very good climbers from all over the world. And those two guys are incredibly fit and um, it just all worked out. Were you, uh, were you drafting on them at the, uh, in that, the final slope up to the summit? I would say drafting is not strong enough of an adjective to describe <laughs> that scenario. Yeah, it was, um, it was awesome and I'll never forget it. And I'm super psyched to have had the opportunity to try the route in those conditions with two really good friends. Is it ridiculous to even talk about speed records in a, in a big mountain environment? I mean, so much depends on the conditions and whether somebody's broken trail ahead of you. And, um, is there any point in talking about records and in big mounds? I think it's different for every person. Every person gets out of climbing something different for me personally, that sort of thing here in the Alps where, you know, you've done the route 20 times and you're just trying to kind of get a rise out of your friends by doing it 10 minutes faster than they did it last week or whatever. But in the big, big mountains, I think for me personally, there's a lot of risk. And if it doesn't go right, the consequences are really big. So I don't really like to use these like kind of track and field kind of analogies and circumstances, because I think if your intentions are pure and you just want to do what you want to do, that's great. But kind of trying to beat somebody else's time, I think, I don't know, it, you know, it could lead to um, decision making that one might regret someday. What about you, Steve or Matt? Is there a is there a game to play here? Is it is there is it a meaningful game? Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily worth like chasing speed records or trying to set something like that because yeah, like Rob said, something's going to go wrong if you're out there trying to push limits and go as fast as you can because that's when you make mistakes. Um, but I think as far as like going to like test your own limits, not necessarily to beat someone else's, but just see where where you stand i mean that's that's generally why we go climbing to have like these profound experiences and you know see see where you are and yeah and you, you learn a lot about yourself and the experience so i think it's more based on your own personal experience than trying to be better than someone else or beat their record steve any thoughts yeah i would reflect a couple of things that that both Rob and Matt said and, and add to them. I think that the observation that, you know, that this is not a, a track, uh, these conditions are not equal from between one ascent and another, as we were just talking about, the gear is not sometimes the same between one ascent and another. And as Matt said, uh, there's just this, you're, you're not there to beat someone. And so, I think that, you know, I'm going to take it, would take it one step further. And I would actually say that the idea of applying a kind of competition mentality to big mountains goes against that. 
actual spirit of climbing big mountains in the first place. We're not there to compete against a person. We're not there to beat someone or to set a record. I think you heard both of them say it. We're going up there climbing to have an experience for ourselves and to find out who we are. And I, I think that, frankly, climbing is, and frankly, mountain sports generally, is headed down a dead end if it tries to take the kind of competition blueprint from other sports and apply it to what we do. And I would go further and say that it's a huge missed opportunity as a sport, as a group of sports, to to try to take that path, because actually the path that we're talking about is a far more beautiful path. And I think that the individual human stories that come out of these climbs, whether it's my climb or Rob's climb or Matt's climb, are all beautiful stories in and of themselves. And beautiful stories don't need to be compared to one another. Beautiful stories are beautiful enough just on their own. And each one is really touching and dramatic and means a lot to the protagonists that got to got to live that in their lives. And, you know, frankly, I can't think of too many better days in my life that I've had in my now 52 years of living than those couple of days spent on the Slovak with Mark and Scott. Those are going to be on the short list. And, you know, that's why, that's why we do it. We don't. So I think that not only should we, I think we actually should, in my opinion, robustly reject the idea of setting records and embrace the idea of people's stories. Because I think that, I think that climbing has evolved past that. And I think as a society, frankly, we're evolving past that. So those are my thoughts. <laughs> I, thought I think I, I think that's really well said, Steve. And I would just kind of add to that. If you take away the world of podcasts and Instagram and sponsors and the internet, there is really nobody to tell, you know, it's like, we never came up with the word speed record, but all these, whatever different media outlets asked us in those words. And, um, you know, it's something that others came up with, not the people who actually did the climbing. Steve, I'm curious, um, with your background in this, your career with uphill athlete, um, training people for, uh, endeavors, big endeavors in the mountains. Um, how much do you think an ascent like the ones we're talking about is physical? How much is technical skill? How much is mental? It, it, does one rise sort of to the top as being the most important aspect in in a huge, ambitious ascent like this? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that my experience with uphill athlete really directly affects how I think about these things because we are coaching mountain athletes and selling training plans to mountain athletes to do technical and general mountaineering climbs all over the world and one of the things i've i've really appreciated about this journey that has now been going on for about seven years is that this i've gained so much appreciation for all these these stories i think that the answer 
to your question is it really depends on the person. For, you know, there are people who are maybe not very fit, but they have great technique and they're mentally super strong and they can get up and down pretty quickly. And then there's people that are super fit and they have terrible technique and maybe they're mentally in the middle of the road and they don't make the summit or do the route. And, you know, so I think it, it, it really varies. I mean, that's why I think alpinism is so interesting is that it, it is such a blend of, you know, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual as well. Did either of you guys, uh, Matt or Rob, feel like there was an element that you were wondering if you're sort of up to it? Um, if if you had doubts going into the the, the big day, um, where where did they lie? You always have doubts when you try something on a big mountain. Um, personally, I always, you know, Michael and Sam are so strong. I always think, well, I hope I can keep up. Um, so that's a doubt. And, um, I would say that I just barely did kind of, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's always doubts, but, um, that's, I guess, part of alpine climbing. How about you, Matt? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you're, you're going into, you know, the unknown and, you know, maybe you're only up there for a day, but it could be a very life altering day and you just never really know the outcome. Um, so I always get the pre-climb jitters, you could call them and you have your own doubts and you run through scenarios in your head. And, you know, if, if you allow yourself to run down that rabbit hole, you can, you know, find yourself terrified (laughs) before starting up. Hmm. But usually once, once you start climbing, once you cross the shrond, it all kind of like disappears and it's, yeah, it's almost like a dream after that. And a lot of my doubts were concerned about like weather and conditions. I mean, really two things that will dictate a climb. So I, I was confident in my partners and my own ability that as long as the weather was good, we could get off the mountain. So that, that definitely eased a lot of my concerns. Can you train the mental side of it? I mean, I guess it's just experience. Um, but, uh, you know, Matt, you talk about, you know, as soon as you start climbing, you know, things settle into the rhythm or feel normal without, you know, you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But um, is there a way to sort of prepare ahead of time to, for something like this mentally? Yeah, I, I, I think you can by pushing you're what you're comfortable with and going out and you know with the objective of like maybe i'm not too comfortable on this kind of terrain so i'm gonna go there as long as you can mitigate the danger and keep it safe Mm -hmm. um as well as just experience doing it over and over and over again you know one thing i observed in reading about all of these ascents and and feel free especially steve if you want to push back if you think this is inaccurate but it seemed like the climbers in 2000 talked a lot about sort of pushing themselves right to the limit, more or less to see what would happen. I mean, it was a test of will, but it was also kind of a survival test of, you know, it was going into battle in a sense. Um, and in contrast, after the reading about the, the climbs this year, it seems like many of the six climbers in the, to these climbs this year talked a lot about sort of keeping within a safety margin. Um, 
like feeling like Rob, you posted, I'm very proud of our ascent in that we climbed quickly, but also safely. Um, and it, it it's interesting because I mean, no climb like this is ever truly safe, but what do you think you guys did this year or uh, in your, in your approach to the sort of the, the strategy for the climb that, that made it safer? Um, I think I went with the right two guys who make really good decisions and they're super strong. And I know that no matter what would happen, that they could deal with the situation and help me deal with the situation. And so just their belief in me was all that I needed to feel like we were being safe and doing things the right way. Matt, anything on that? As we climbed up, we assessed the terrain that we were going through, and I think we all kind of felt confident that we could retreat at any point. Um, So I feel like that gave us a little safety net, knowing that we could get down as well. Hang on, I'm going to stop you there, because people talk a lot about, uh, and Steve has talked about this, this specific climb, that above a certain point, you know, the retreat would be impossible or very, very, very difficult. And, you know, in 2022, you're carrying a lot less gear uh, than they were in 2000. So how how possible is it to retreat uh, if you get into difficulty, say, half, two-thirds of the way up the steep lower section of the, of the climb? It, it would be very time-consuming. Um, you could repel almost entirely on threads um, with the most difficult part of descending would be um, or having to reverse a couple traverses. So maybe have to pitch a couple things out. But other than that, I think it would be fairly reasonable to down climb a lot of snow and repel the steeper sections on threads. I think it would mostly just be time consuming. I want to point something out there that is really key is in 2000, we didn't know about V threads. I was just going to ask. I couldn't remember the timing. Yeah, we didn't have them. So we had the screws Whoa. and the rock gear. We didn't right. know about V-threads yet. Right. So it makes that's, an why, difference. that's why we couldn't imagine coming down because, you know, 60 pitches, you know, whatever, 15 cams, some nuts and 12 ice screws, it wasn't enough to get down. Right. And with V-threads, you can leave a bit of cord or nothing at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The naked threads. I mean, like, this is only a few years later. I was right at that transition because I know, like, I think about my expeditions in the, in Asia in 2003, four or five, and we were using V-threads all the time by then. Hmm. But hmm. in 2000, we hadn't learned about them yet. You know, one, one final question, I think, uh, maybe it's a big one, but hearing Steve talk today about the climb and, and in the past and about being one of the most memorable days of his life and, uh, you know, it seemed like it was really a life-changing moment for that team, a test of themselves as people and almost like a path to to enlightenment. And I'm wondering for Matt, you and Rob, uh, can it really even be the same today? I mean, if you're doing the same route in a push and simply going that much faster, um, can it generate, the, did it generate those same kinds of feelings that Steve described? Or do you think it actually takes, you know, 60 plus hours out there to 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 have that sort of almost mystical experience i would say that i feel that we had a similar 
uh, feeling of, yeah, euphoria, um, team building, all these things. But I think it's important to remember that when Steve climbed the route, it just was profoundly different. I mean, our knowledge of the terrain, our weather, our conditions, our gear, um, again, we're like getting into this comparison game. It's, it's hard because it's different. Um, I think we had a different experience up there, but I agree with Steve. I mean, it's a day that I will never forget with two really good friends and, um, yeah, pretty powerful and awesome experience. How about you, Matt? Do you feel like you need to go even bigger now to have the same kind of experience that, that Steve had in 2000? Like Rob said, I don't think we can compare the experiences because each one is unique. Um, in our experience on the Slovak, we definitely felt a strong sense of connection with each other and trust in our partners and, you know, being able to climb that kind of route, you, you know, covering that much terrain, it's something truly special and fairly profound. Um, but as far as having to go bigger to have a more profound experience, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because you do one thing and then if that wasn't enough, then you want to go try a bigger climb. And if that's not enough, then you keep going until you find something that shuts you down. So, I, yeah, I think it's in the natural progression of, of climbing to want to go a little bigger than you previously did, assuming you had success. Mm-hmm. So you find your limits or have that truly out of this world experience. I, I do want to say this about the Slovak. It is it did two things for me. One, uh, I could kind of never climb in Alaska again after that. Like I did climb other routes. Like I climbed the Moonflower. I climbed the uh, Infinite Spur with Rolo the next year. And just nothing was ever as good. <laughs> it was just, it was, like Rob said, you know, it was just so, so good. And the other thing is, I always said it would be one route that I would absolutely go back and do again if I had the opportunity and had good weather and the good conditions and all those things and the right partners. It was just, I would love to do it again, knowing what we all know now and do it like in, like kind of have fun and not feel like I was, you know, going to a fight to the death. It would have a totally different obviously flavor and experience but it was just so good i'd probably want to like you know get picked up at the top at sixteen thousand feet at the top of the technical difficulties <laughs> i'd be happy with that but but the but the technical climbing as both of these guys uh attested was just just five stars all the way it's just such a great route it's such a great line and it's so safe objectively uh just just it's every bit as good as everybody says. It's important to note that there was one more very impressive climb of the Slovak Direct this year. In late May, Richard Nemich and Michael Savavšek, both from Slovakia no less, climbed the route in about 40 hours. Forgive me if I botched their names. They also led and followed the difficult rock pitch that Matt Cornell mentioned in this episode all free reportedly suggesting M8 for the lead. Thanks to Steve, Rob, and Matt for coming on the show and sharing their stories. 
We'll have some photos and a link to Scott Backey's 2001 AAJ story at the Cutting Edge website. Thanks also to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for being a rock-solid partner for this show month after month. We get additional support from Loa Boots, Polar Tech, and Gnarly Nutrition. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>